no one's really asked me if I regret this, you know, becoming a filmmaker or would have chosen other occupation because that comes up occasionally for me. So the question would be, you know, if I had the chance to do it again, would I, you know, would I just become a filmmaker? And it's not as easy. Like, I don't think it's a a for sure yes, because there's a lot of challenges to uh, a creative life, I guess, right? People are always like, oh, you know, it's, that must be so great. It does, it's fairly all-consuming. On this episode of the Work Not Work Show, our guest is Calgary-based storyteller, filmmaker, and educator Gary Burns. Here he contemplates having become a filmmaker and whether he would do it over again if given the opportunity. You know, you only get one shot at this. So, you know, at your life, and it's, would you be better off to be a doctor or a politician or do something where you're actually making policy and, you know, you're doing something constructive, you know, because is this just entertainment and what's its real value? I mean, I try to make my work be about something a bit bigger than just entertainment. So I feel pretty good about a couple of my films where I feel like, you know, I think Radio City, I had people come up to me and say, you know, I bought a condo downtown instead of a place out in, you know, in Rocky View or whatever after I saw your film. I've had the odd occasion where someone actually says, you know, your film had an impact on me. Gary Burns has been called Canada's king of surreal comedy. While apt, it does not adequately capture the range of this unique filmmaker. In this extensive interview, we talk with Gary about his films in the context of his strong opinions about urban planning, the built environment, and modern society. Highlights of Gary's film career include Kitchen Party in 1997, followed quickly by Suburbanators and Way Downtown in 2000. He continued with Cool Money in 2005, the award-winning Radiant City in 2006, and The Future Is Now in 2011. Gary has a strong commitment to the renewal of the art through education and recently was named Filmmaker in Residence at the University of Calgary. For going opportunities in Hollywood, Burns has remained in Calgary so he could make his films the way he wanted to make them. We met Gary at his home in a leafy downtown Calgary neighborhood on an early summer afternoon. Gary Burns, thank you so much for taking time to join us on the Work Not Work show. It's truly an honor to have you as a guest, and I've been an admirer of your work since your way downtown days. My wife and I saw that in theatrical release. That's uh, so 15-odd years ago, I guess. At least, I would say, maybe more. Let's start with one of your current endeavors. In spring of this year, you became the inaugural filmmaker-in-residence at the University of Calgary. Can you first tell us about that program and then how you became involved in it? It's Yeah, it was their first year. They're, it's an experiment, I guess, on their part. The film program at, at uh, U of C is, is film studies. It's all theoretical. There's no practical filmmaking. They have had a connection. You could do like a two-year, two-year with SAIT, I think, and so you have some practical there. But anyway, they want to try something. My wife, Donna Brunsdale, she's taught there. so we And we know people from there. They thought of me and um, and asked me to be there, you know, the first uh filmmaker residence. Does it represent a watershed moment or turning point where you feel that you have accumulated enough knowledge that you think it's time to start passing some of that along to the next generation? 
I've done a bit of this before. Like, I've never done something this intensive. It was a three-week full-on teaching uh, gig. I've done smaller versions of this, like a one-week, you know, four days here and there. I've done workshops, but all through my career even, you know, because I've always been closely associated with the film co-op system in Canada, so the CSIF here in Calgary. You know, so even when I was just getting started, people want to know how you got going. You know, even once you made one feature, that's more than a lot of people have done. So even after I'd made Suburbanators, people would ask me to, or give writing workshops because I've written, I write my own scripts. So mm. over the years, I've done a bit of this, but this was a bigger one for me. And it was, it's more work, obviously. How long does the term run? It's it's three weeks, but it's um, three full days a week. So it was, uh, thankfully, there was a long weekend in there. So it was only eight classes, I think. So are you likely to return next year, do it again, or will they seek somebody else out? It's a, you know, for them, it's a, they're going to see how it goes. I, don't, I think they probably have someone different every year. I don't know. Teaching's work, you know, and it takes you away from your other work. So I kind of like doing it. And this was very hands-on. We had, you know, we were making stuff. So you kind of get invigorated, you know, by seeing what, uh, you know, 20-year-olds are up to. I was going to ask, how, how would you rate the quality of the student? I had a great group because they were all, you know, basically film students. So they're all, you know, they're taking theory. They'd seen a lot of films. They were, you know, they're already keeners. Right. You know, they're not, it wasn't open to the general school population. I think you had to be a film studies student. Given that it's the inaugural session of the program, does it mark a turning point for the University of Calgary and their film program? It's still a relatively new program. It's fairly solid. They have limited resources, obviously. And um, one of the things about this was, you know, it used to be like when I went to film school, you know, we were shooting on 60 millimeter cameras and equipment's expensive, you know, everything's expensive. I mean, I see this a lot. I mean, I have a 14-year-old son, and he probably has much more filmmaking experience now as a 14-year-old than I did when I went to film school, you know, at university. Because back then, you didn't even need to have made anything. You know, I got into film school based on some sketches. Um, You spent some time at Concordia in the early 90s. So why was it you started at Calgary, then you went to Concordia, and then you came back to Calgary? So can you just describe that just a little bit? Well, I want to go to film school. And, you know, in the 90s, uh, film school meant uh, Ryerson... I wouldn't even say that. I would say York and Toronto, Concordia, Montreal, Emily Carr, uh, UBC, or, or Simon Fraser, I can't remember, one of those two, had a small program as well. So there wasn't anything here. There's always been the SATE program. I mean, the SATE program to me is more like for creating, it's more for technicians. The mechanics you know, learning the skills. of the filmmaking. Yeah, and yeah. it's, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say, it, it just doesn't have the theoretical aspects. and. So I was going to, I'd already been in Montreal. I lived in Montreal a bit. I, I liked Montreal, so I kind of chose Montreal. Montreal was also cheaper. You know, this, in the 90s, Toronto was really expensive. Montreal was still relatively inexpensive. So there's a few decisions. What are the big important ideas you try and impart on U of C film students? Oh, you learn by making films. I say that to everybody. It's, you know, people are saying, what should I do? And just like, go out and do stuff. Like, just, you learn from your mistakes. Not every film you make has to be something that's going to have some lasting quality. Like, you can just, I've made films that I only showed once, you know, and that's it. And then you just learned when I was starting out, you know, you learn from doing and just keep pumping the stuff out. And the beauty, of course, film school is you're, if there's 15 in the class, which we had, you know, everyone, you get to see, you learn from everybody else's mistakes and also what's working. So you're kind of, I mean, there's the collaborative aspect, but you really learn from doing. And of course, in a class setting where there's 15 of you doing stuff, just condensed, you learn a ton because you can see what's what's flying and what's not. What's the one piece of advice you offer in the program that you really hope students take? 
I do talk about sound recording. <laughs> you know, the one thing is, even with the Suburbanators, you know, my first feature, we all worked for free except for the sound recorders. The images can be very obscure and hard to see, and, you know, you can be, it can be confusing or even low quality, I guess you could say. You can get away with it if the sound's solid. If you're listening and it's, you're there just orally, you can keep people's attention. But you can't, it's very hard the opposite way. So you could have, you know, could look great, but if you can't hear what's going on or it's really muddled. And so I always talk, you know, it's very important to get good sound, uh, location sound. Conversely, what was the best advice you were offered at sort of a similar stage in your career? And did you recognize it as such? And did you follow it? Remember one of my production classes, my uh, instructor said, you got to go see this movie. And he told me to go see uh, Slacker, Richard Linklater's Slacker. But the idea that um, what it was about this film that was so important was it was a very low-budget independent film. The idea around it was was kind of complex, but technically it was very, very basic. It was an eye-opener for me because I remember going to this film, you know, in Montreal and seeing that I could do that. There's a lot of ideas going on in that movie, and I, I, I can't say I could at that time that I could do what Richard Linklater was doing. But technically, I could see as a film student that this wasn't far out of reach. Well, that's an observation I would make about the films that you've made. They are very spare. There's not a lot of, by way of special effects or gadgetry or gimmickry. It's really dialogue and scene-driven. Filmmaking is complex. It's like even just sound design. You know, you could spend your whole career just being good at creating sound design. And of course, you could spend your whole career just being honing your writing skills. But to be a writer-director like I am, there's just a lot going on, you know. And to get good at it, I found the most challenging things at the very beginning was, A, you got to have the idea and you got to be able to write. So you got to write dialogue. You have to come up with a story. Of course, you got to get everybody together and you got to make the thing. What I tended to do, you know, you have to deal with actors. You know, you have, it's, it's just, there's so many different levels and I wasn't going to get caught up in tracking shots and, and fancy camera moves. And it was just beyond me at the time. It seemed like I can't concentrate on that right now. I'm going to, I'm going to concentrate on, on the word and the actors and try to make it pretty simple. And, you know, after a while, you get more confidence and you start adding things and make things a little more complicated and maybe start, you know, throwing down some track and some camera movement, et cetera, and effects even. But I think it, it just took me a while to kind of get there. And as I moved throughout my career was do what I felt capable of, you know, and not sort of overstep my abilities, I guess. What's your earliest memory of wanting to be a filmmaker? I was never, I wasn't a real cinephile. Um, I was like anybody, I think I was... You know, I don't know, as an adolescent, I had favorite films and favorite uh, actors and stuff like that. But I never thought of filmmaking as a career till I was probably in my mid-20s, maybe even later. Being young and watching the Oscars, and I think it was actually Dustin Hoffman for Little Big Man or something. And I remember just in my head kind of going, man, I would like to be there. You know, like... <laughs> Making the acceptance speech? Well, being in that position where I you're see. kind of, you know, right. you're at the award ceremony and, uh, right. you know, so I think there is that kind of people desire. I had a desire of, you know, I don't know if it's fame, but acceptance, maybe. I'm not sure. It was really more of looking for a job that I would look forward to getting up in the morning and going to do something. And I think that's all I was really searching for, even right out of high school. And I, I you know, I tried different things and some worked and some didn't. And even when I went to film school, I remember my friends, because I was going out to Montreal, and packing my truck up and some friends gave me a card, you know, like they wrote me a going away card and it said, 
Burns, what is it? Burns tries filmmaking this time around. It was like, it was kind of a given I was probably going to try this too and, and then try something else after that. You mentioned a second ago that your interest in filmmaking was triggered by watching the Academy Awards, which is kind of a commercial ambition. And yet you've stuck it out in Calgary all these years. Did you ever feel the temptation to go Hollywood and perhaps take a more traveled route to your career rather than sticking out in Calgary? You know, it's a complex question. When I made my second film, Kitchen Party, I was swamped by reps from Hollywood. We had, I had an agent. I was uh, rep by ICM. I was sent scripts. Um, still here in Calgary. We went to LA. Uh, we met with New Line. And what came out of it almost all the time was they liked the script, but it's not puerile enough. It needs, you know, you need some more fart jokes. You need, and for us, I think it was the idea that, well, okay, but no problem. We already know we can make it back in Canada. It's like there's this creative freedom you have. I was offered projects. I had a, a project I turned down. If I'd taken that project, would that have led to other projects? I don't know, but I certainly took the safe route. I came back home and, and kept working. Didn't make a ton of dough, but I kept, you know, could do what I wanted. And I'm sure if, if I had pursued LA, I wouldn't have made Way Downtown. I certainly wouldn't have made Radiant City, probably. Some of the things I end up creating, which I'm proud of, are almost because of the difficulty in making film here in Canada. Do I regret not trying Hollywood a little more? Eh, I'm not sure if I do, you know. TEDxYYC, in April of 2011, your talk was entitled, Inspired by Disappointment. There's a question that practically asks itself, what did you mean by that? I think, I think my wife, Donna, um, came up with the, that tagline, which I love. It, it's very apt, though. I think it's, it, it's, it is social satire, social criticism, but a lot of it's around criticizing the the built environment. And it's just something I've always been interested in. I was nine years old when the Calgary Tower was built. That was a big deal, you know, and my dad worked downtown, you know, in construction on a lot of the new towers going up. And I remember always even having a favorite building, you know, like I remember, oh, this is my favorite building. Having that kind of optimism and sort of positive attitude around, you know, growth and the new, you know, Calgary, this new city that I was, uh, you know, grew up in, it shifted after a while. And I think I just started to see things was the suburbs a very good place to grow up? I grew up in, you know, Westgate, which is, you know, at the time was a brand new suburb when I was born. My parents also, you know, were from, they were immigrants from England and uh, uh, from Liverpool precisely. And we'd go back there for six weeks, every maybe second or third summer. You'd go to Liverpool and all of a sudden you're like, you're in the pub and there's like grandmas there and, you know, all these cousins and kids and everyone's in the bar kind of thing. And it's, it seems like there's real community, like a real world, you know. And then you go back to Westgate, you know, and you're sitting in the basement watching TV by yourself. <laughs> and it just seems like, what's going on? I don't know if this is quite functioning the way it's uh, sold. So I think when it came to starting to make films when I got to film school, you know, I was 30 when I got to film school. By then, I, I started having opinions about the city and not just Calgary, but just, you know, like North America, you know, this our, our culture that we were a part of. And, and I started to criticize it in my work. So I think this idea of... Um, uh, the TED Talk, was that my work is in a reaction to something. 
I'm not just making it up out of the air, you know. So this inspired by disappointment is sort of, you know, you know, it's like the plus 15 system. It just seems like, oh, what a great idea. Let's make it so you don't have to put your coat on to go for lunch and, uh, and kill the streetscape of the city uh, downtown. I really was a big critic of the plus 15s. I really thought that they were doing a, a tremendous disservice to the downtown <laughs> architecture at the time. And I made a movie about it, you know, because it was kind of like it was something there that needed to be talked about. And so I think this idea of, you know, inspired by disappointment is it's kind of tongue in cheek. It's basically saying I'm inspired by the things that are letting me down. We're a little over six years from that talk. Are you still disappointed? Certainly. I'm actually right now pretty keen on making a Radiant City 2. There's other ideas coming out of it. You know, it doesn't seem like things things are getting worse rather than getting better. In Calgary, it's funny. I've, I'm always, you know, kind of keen to keep up on what's going on in city planning and politics. They're talking about they still expect 70% of new growth in Calgary to be at the fringes in the suburbs. But for like the next 25 years, there's no attempts to slow it down at all. And to me, it, it just seems like a... A, a disaster you know it's a real mistake <laughs> and the city's not going to get better it's going to get worse you know in that same talk you you, you challenge yourself to find things to be optimistic about you at the time you were optimistic about the mayor how's that worked out um you know he's a suburban mayor i mean even the new green line yeah great lrt's all you know good i mean well now it goes out to westgate my old my old neighborhood and but in some respects, if it's going too far out into the suburbs, it's just enabling that kind of growth. If you just had really good urban transportation, but it's only in the center, and if you want to live at the far extremities, tough luck. No LRT for you, buddy. You know, I think that's the way it should be. Having the LRT go all the way out to 168th or whatever, is, that's insanity to me. But um, In preparing for this interview, I watched, or rewatched in some cases, three of your films. Um, way Downtown from 2000. A Radiant City from 2006, and The Future is Now from 2011. So more or less three evenly spaced checkpoints in your career in a little over a decade. In one way or another, they all return to the theme of society and its troubled relationship with its environment. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in other things, but as far as when I made The Suburbanators getting out of film school, I didn't consider myself a writer. Like, I couldn't write... Obviously, I couldn't write a short story or a novel. I didn't feel comfortable writing even a traditional restorative three-act structure narrative. To me, that was, you know, that's kind of complicated. But also, it's it's a bit cheap in some ways. I think the restorative three-act structure also is giving you a false sense of that we can all change and we can quickly turn our thing, our lives around and things are going to turn out great. Partially, I was writing out of, here's what I know. I know what it's like to grow up in the suburbs and, um, you know, have not much ambition. I can write about that. A hallmark of your work is the commingling of dramatic and documentary elements, which seems to have grown over time. In Way Downtown was almost entirely dramatic, the way I saw it, but with social satire and a strong social commentary. Um, Radiant City seemed to me to be split evenly between dramatic and documentary elements. And the future is now seemed almost a full documentary laced together with what I would describe as a small story premise. Is that a fair characterization of your work? Um, Of that stage, certainly. I think, you know, with Radiant City, we we really, uh, you know, I co-directed it with Jim Brown. It started out as a pretty straight doc. One of our challenges was we're making a, a documentary about suburban sprawl. How do you make that interesting and compelling? You know, how do you get people to go to it? 
that film played in theaters across Canada and in the U.S. It was fantastic. I, it's, I really enjoyed it. But what makes that film work, I think, is the fact that we, you know, we really played with the form. And it wasn't something new. You know, I mean, people, you know, mucking with the documentary form for, you know, for 70 years. It, it worked for that project. And, um, but it was also fun and it was kind of challenging. We'd initially thought we would have one actor in that film because we thought, you know, the families, we use real families. And what if, the, you know, the narrative that's coming out of there isn't compelling enough? You know, like, how do we mix it up? So we thought, well, if we have one plant, we can kind of, you know, maybe we can make that person interact with the with the real people. But then it turned out, once we started casting, we, when we cast Radiant City, we actually said, we want actors that live in the suburbs. So we had regular casting call, and we got all these people from the suburbs. I even knew some of them from, from film school. Not film school, from when I was in drama at UFC. And then they would all tell us their real stories, and we took their real stories and put them into our... Because that's totally scripted, that film. I mean, it's a documentary, but it's we were following a script. It just became what it became. It was kind of like... It was very organic. You know, it wasn't planned at the very beginning, because we had CBC and the National Film Board, you know, and they didn't know that was going to happen at the beginning. And then we sort of broke it to them gradually, and then it became... The degree to which you were successful, the way we measured it, was we were probably halfway through the film before we thought, is this for real? And I guess you had a smattering of people that were straight up documentary. I mean, I think the real estate agent was an actual real estate agent. She actually sells houses in that neighborhood, if I'm not mistaken. And yet there was this kind of seamless blending between that caricature of that type of person and contrasted it with the other people in the film who who were acting but you really didn't know it at the time. Can you talk a little bit about the practicalities of mixing that blend of dramatic and documentary elements? How do you write a script for that? I can't imagine that you handed Kunstler words to read in his appearances in Radiant City. We did, in the end, because we because it, it, with the experts, they're reading from their books for the most part. So we knew what their opinions are, what they have a body work behind them. So, you know, the experts in the film are pretty straight. You know, they're just telling their thing. Here we are in the pleasing rest area of the bike trail where the uh, easy motoring utopia meets nature. Some clown in an office somewhere thought that this would be a good idea and that's why it's here, not because anybody really uh, tested uh, whether or not people would feel good here. And in fact, it's really an amazingly brutal environment. Where did we get the idea that chain link was was a pleasing ornamental material. It's really suitable for dog runs and scrap yards and prisons. So what you get here really is sort of the ambiance of riot in cell block D. The assault upon your neurology is really impressive and you really have to be here to appreciate it. You know, with Kunstler, we might go, you know, we asked him to describe, you know, a building behind him, say, we know what his philosophy is, so we pretty much know where he's going. And even in a scripted form, because you're still trying to raise money, you got to get money from the, you know, you got funders. You have a document, and what you, you know, it's accepted that you can go. Here's generally what we think this guy's going to say. You know, he's got a body of work behind him, so you can do that. But then, of course, the the families, we're just giving them dialogue, <laughs> and but some of it was their own stories too. So you could just say, can you expand on this idea? It's so seamless, though. The sense you get from watching the film is that. These are real people telling real stories. They're, they're believable, both in their in the way they execute the role and the, the nature of the story that they're telling. You can believe it all. 
part of it is there they are i mean some of the things they're they're conveying are their real stories because we took them from our interviews with them and put them in and so even at the end when they're revealed as actors and then you see it's like uh, i forget the name the guy's name the bob the the father of the main family you know you see he actually lives in rocky ridge and his experience is that he has to get in his car to go get a cup of coffee you know so you see that it's mirrored the reality of their actual existence isn't that much different than what we fictionalized too. So you're working on Radiant City 2? It's a pipe dream. But I mean, it's something I'm, no, I mean, I'm, I have a producer where, you know, I've got to write some more pages. But yeah, we have an idea. Um, well, what leapt off the page for me when I watched it was a, was a series. One of the beauties of it is, I, you know, if you, let's say, you know, CBC or the NFB said, yeah, let's make another one. People would expect it to be different like they they wouldn't if you just did a straight doc they'd be disappointed so obviously you have to kind of go with the spirit of the first one so i think there's i mean there's some there's some angles there for sure i wouldn't describe your work as nakedly political but it certainly has an opinion about public policy or things impacted by public policy have you ever considered running for public office you know i i it it's crossed my mind but only because you know i've I've helped other politicians with with their campaigns and stuff like that. Donna says I'm pathologically honest. I cannot basically not just say what's on my mind. And I think I don't think I have the tact for politics. I think I would just get into trouble right away. And I'm not sure. I always think of my qualifications. What are my qualifications? You know, really, yeah. I don't think I have the patience for it either. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to comment from the outside, really. There's a funny story you tell where you booed uh, Alberta's then Premier Ralph Klein. You may have to explain a little bit for our audience who that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then saw pelicans flying over the Calgary Tower in the same day. Now, I'm not doing the story any justice at all. So can you tell us that story and what it meant to you at the time? My brother and I would do that every year almost. If we saw Ralph Klein go by in the parade, we would boo. And it was always funny because we'd be the only ones. You know, Everyone's just politely clapping. Um, I think there was a lot of support for Klein in the early, early years, when he was mayor, even, you know, there was support for him. But once he got into provincial politics, and you could see how fast it was going south, it was just fun. I mean, boo, you're the only one. Everyone's clapping and everyone's happy. (laughs) And you're booing. And, you know, parents are looking at you with their kids and their cowboy hats. And they're just total like, what is your problem? It speaks a bit to my opinion of the man and that sort of time in uh, Alberta of uh, politics. But the Pelican story is completely different. I think it, what I think what, what makes them kind of, I think they happened like, you know, could have happened within five minutes, you know, boo Ralph Klein, look up and there's, you know, seven or 10 Pelicans gliding over downtown. And you look around, and you know that all the people here that won't boo Klein don't know that Pelicans live in Calgary. <laughs> which to me is a really, I mean, they don't live here anymore because they changed the weir. I haven't seen them here for a few years, but you don't have to drive very far to see pelicans. Every here. once in a while, you would see them on the on the Bull River. I ride my bike up and down the Bull River, and once every four or five years, you would see them. Yeah, yeah. well, it's amazing that they live in, uh, they nest in up in Athabasca, uh, but they summer down on the Gulf Coast, you know. But it's more about just that it's a surreal experience, right? Is I mean, the Calgary Parade, for one, is enough to, you know, shake you out of your doldrums. <laughs> and uh, But um, it was all a package, I think. You said something interesting in one of your interviews, I think, where you talked about the stampede board. I mean, I, you know, I was, we lived in Ramsey before we lived here and moved here to Sunnyside. And, and if you live in Ramsey, you know, you're under the thumb of the stampede. They do what they want. 
I think they've, you know, they destroyed Victoria Park. You know, they took a, a vibrant, one of the oldest communities in Calgary, and they just made it into a parking lot for no other reason than their short-sightedness and, you know, lack of imagination. Yeah, I have a real hate on for the Stampede. And, um, you know, not as, you know, great, 10-day event, go crazy, you know, have fun 10 days. But don't pretend you're anything more than that, a 10-day fair. I don't think it warrants destroying neighborhoods. <laughs> career neatly spans the shift from more traditional filmmaking to this new internet-enabled age where anybody with an iPhone, iMovie, and a Vimeo account is in the movie-making business. Beyond the obvious material impacts, what are the implications to the film industry of all of that change? Yeah, that's a pretty complicated question. When I started making films, when I was a film student, you know, we were shooting 16 millimeter film. You had to show you know, your films had to be on film to show in theaters. I even have, I mean, even uh, Suburbanators only came out on VHS and never came out on DVD. But every film I've made, you know, up to now, literally the technology has changed. And this just from a, from a production side. But also the dissemination of film has completely changed. Futures Now I still had to be put out on 35mm. And that was not long ago because it was still that not all the theaters had changed over to DCP. But that's just practical, like in theaters, movie watching. But also, I mean, the idea now that, you know, there's all these titles of films you want to see and you can't even see them because there's no video stores anymore. And of course, Netflix doesn't carry them all. It's getting very difficult even to to be, you know, a cinephile wanting to see old Tarkovsky films, you know, unless it's sort of really mainstream art house. It's, it's hard to even see a lot of this stuff. The idea of how it's disseminated as far as, you know, it's on your phone, it's on your computer. You know, I'm the same. We don't have cable. We watch everything on laptops now. Unless, I mean, I'm on the board of the Cinematheque. You know, we bring in films to see in theaters. And I still think that's the way you should see films. It's getting harder and harder. You know, film festivals in some ways have taken place of, of sort of the art house cinema. But then that's your 10-day fix and then it's over i'm actually kind of down on film festivals a little bit because you do get yeah great you know they get sixty thousand people go to calgary film festival but where are those people the rest of the year when you know the films are playing in you know the globe or wherever you know and they're struggling to get an audience if sif didn't exist would people be forced to kind of search out those films are you just showing films to the festival crowd that wouldn't see them anyway unless they were in in a festival environment so that's a tough one. As far as, you know, my practice hasn't changed that much. I mean, you know, I'm still writing and trying to make stuff. Yes, you know, I've, I can put films up on Vimeo, which is handy. You know, I, I, I think Vimeo is actually great for disseminating your own material, even just to be able to put it up to send to somebody, you know, even if it's just a festival or, you know, a funder. As far as like my son, he watches everything on his phone. It's unbelievable. You know, we go to the theater once in a while. He comes to Cinematech screenings. Um, his friends go to see the blockbusters. He doesn't watch any TV. 
zero. That's almost like a problem for not so much for the content providers, but for the disseminators. You know, if you're Bell, if you're Rogers, whatever, you're probably sweating a little bit, wondering how you're going to keep an audience. If you've lost 14-year-olds from TV, you're never going to get them back. It's funny, though. You walk down the street here and you can look in the window and everyone, you know, their TVs are on and people are chilling. So I think maybe there's still, maybe you turn a certain age and you start to veg on the couch. <laughs> I'm not sure, <laughs> but... Is this a new golden age of filmmaking or some version of Dante's Nine Circles of Hell? It's funny. What I remember seeing Hoop Dreams, which is a documentary on high school basketball. I saw it at the Uptown Theater, in the theater. It would have been a 35 print. And some of the imagery is really super low quality, like super low quality. They're showing high school basketball games that they're shooting off of a TV monitor. You know, this is back in the 90s. That footage would have been shot on, you know, who knows, probably VHS you know, in a high school gym. I remember seeing that film and just going, this is it. You know, now anybody can make a film. If people will sit in a theater and watch this, it's a great doc. It's super compelling. But the imagery doesn't matter. You know, the the sound quality, yeah, it's a bit questionable. It doesn't look very good. This is a very bare bones, technically substandard, you know, looking product. And I thought, this is it, man. Everybody's going to be making stuff now. You know, it's going to open the doors. But it doesn't seem to have happened. Yes, you could make a feature film with your phone. But the hard part is actually having an idea that's compelling and putting it together in a package that people can will get sucked into, you know. That's the hard part. It doesn't seem like, I know there's, you know, even since I went to film school now, there's, you know, everyone can be a filmmaker. You know, even the way I work now, you know, I'm still, I'm cutting on my Mac, you know, like it's amazing. The technology is really, it is liberating. It is easier. But people still want to see, you know, 120-minute thing. And they want it to, you know, suck them in and, and keep them glued. And that is hard. And I think it hasn't, I don't think it's, um, I think it's been a good thing. You know, I mean, I've always been kind of interested in the technology. Like, just as far as, I'm still, I'm making a film in the fall. I think I may even shoot some of it on 16 millimeter. Certainly we'll be shooting it digitally. And it's going to be pretty funky, but, you know, I'm excited by every new thing that comes around the bend and it doesn't change things that much. And it has, like I said before, like every film I've made has been, I've shot almost in a different format, <laughs> you know. Well, I, I was surprised to see that some some young filmmakers who are bringing back that old kind of Kodachrome look. I always push that. I mean, with my film students when I was, you know, the big thing I was talking to them about was just about texture. You know, anybody can pick up a camera that has, you know, you can pick up, you can buy a nice DSLR, you know, for a thousand bucks with a decent lens and you're on your way, man, go make a feature. But generally people just point it and it looks crappy. You know, it's like, you got to make it feel like something. Where's the texture? Like, where's the, where's the warmth of the feel to it? And of course, you can push a filter that gives a little some grain. Right. To me, I, I could see young filmmakers going, "Oh, look, I gave it a grainy look," and you're going, "No, you gave it a fake grainy look. Grainy look is, you know, shot shoot on, on 16 and then shoot it off your old TV. <laughs> there, that's some. They gonna have some funkiness going on. So, I'm always kind of. That's I think one of the problems is you have to lend it something, you know, that, that comes from... It can't be a gimmick. Yeah, exactly. So how is it that the changes in the industry will change or impact the projects you take on in the future? I don't think it does. You know, I, I think, you know, I have this project coming up in the fall, which it, it, it revolves around an ultra marathon. So it's people running. It's, it's going to be a real challenge to pull off. And a one, a friend of mine I was talking to, and he's going, oh man, you could use, uh, you could use drones. That'd be the easiest thing in the world. 
that I'm like, yeah, won't work for this. Theoretically, you go, yeah, you could have a drone, you know, you could have all this aerial stuff. But to me, this story takes place on the ground. It's running and it's the bumpiness and the, you know, and the sweat and grit of it. And I think if we were shooting this, certainly if we were shooting this 10, 15 years ago, you know, steady cams were cumbersome, uh, like even what we used in Radiant City, you know, you follow the kids to the houses. You know, I remember we had the guy, okay, you want to follow these kids to the houses? And it's about, you know, 100 meters, maybe, right? You got to go through, through, through. And that was about all he could do. He was like, when he got to 100 meters, he had to stop. He was exhausted. <laughs> Just the physical <laughs> handling of the camera. Equipment. Totally. Wow. And I think now, you know, I'm talking with the same cinematographer, the smaller, lighter cameras, these new gimbal, you know, you don't need the big clumsy steady cams anymore. Um, even the new versions are light as hell, you know, I mean, really light and you can, the technology is going to make this film easier to make. These are like the Osmo devices that you would use with your phone almost, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That size. Right. Technology is, you know, it's just a means to an end. You know, you have to, you still got to get down there and, you know, it's still actors talking, you know, (laughs) and running or doing whatever they're doing. One observation that is being made by many, perhaps as a result of this new age in which we find ourselves is the extremely short attention span of the audience. Is there room for feature-length films of the non-blockbuster variety? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> it will be a question of my son. I mean, I know he's he's got a pretty short attention span. You know, he can watch the blockbusters, whether you can get him to... You know, we've kind of ruined him for art film because we took him to, you know, a lot of Cinematech screenings when he was a little guy and, you know, some really difficult stuff. Uh, or I would say challenging films. And it's, you know, it kind of turned them off a little bit. It's hard to say. I don't know. I mean, the group that I just taught, you know, they're all, they're young, they're 18, 19. You know, they're cinephiles for the most part. They like to watch movies. They're talking about movies. I like challenging ideas in cinema. I like that. But the niche, you know, the audience for those films, films I like, is already small. And it's been small, you know, it's been small for 50 years. Right. It's a tough one. Canada, we're making film, you know, I'm still get most of my funding is if I'm not getting it directly from the government, I'm getting it from a broadcaster that's been told by the government they've got to pump out some Canadian content. So right. it's a real socialist kind of, you know, film industry. Europe's like that. You know, South America's like that. Everywhere but the U.S. is basically like that. Right. The dollar isn't that important. If, you know, you still got to get the thing made and it's becoming more and more difficult. If you had to come up with one word or a couple of words that describe what it is you do, what would they be and why? I mean, generally, you're a storyteller, you know, and I think the the biggest thing with filmmaking, and I tell this to students, is why should anybody pay attention to what you're doing? You got to offer them something. It's about an idea and it's got to be compelling. You know, you can be a geekhead or you can be really into the technology or you can be a cinephile, but if you want to be a filmmaker, you basically have to be disseminating some kind of idea. You know, you've got to, you have to be a storyteller and there's got to be a reason for people to want to want to see this thing, you know? So, I mean, that's the whole job and you do it, you know, you think you've got some idea that's pretty solid and then you, you know, you throw it out there and I just mean like to funders and, you know, you're trying to get money to make a thing mm-hmm. and, and they could just fall flat, just goes nowhere. And you can tell right away, you think it's a great idea. 
there's always someone between you and and getting your idea out there. And um, but like with this latest project, it just people really like it. It's just it's going to happen. Can you, know? you can you talk about that a little bit about that project beyond what you've already said? Basically, we were looking for something. It's pretty challenging right now, the funding landscape, and because um, I haven't made a fiction in quite a while, I've been making documentaries. And even documentaries, like I've been kind of riding waves of, you know, you kind of make what you can make, you know. So I was lucky when I got to film school, I was making uh, independent auteur. I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't throw that around too much, but it's the idea that your writer director driven films was, you know, happening in Canada in the 1990s. So I was, I just happened to be one of those guys and I could get funding to make films. Um, at a certain point, you know, conservative Harper comes in, conservative government, tele- everything slashed, even the broadcasters, everyone's nervous. All of a sudden, projects you thought were going to get made aren't getting made. So I'm like, NFB, here we come. You know, I'd heard that maybe feature filmmakers doing docs went in there, did a couple big budget docs, really. Like even Radiant City was like a pretty, you know, a decent budget. Everybody got paid. It was fun. And then uh, very quickly, NFB gets cut. Now they're not doing anything. They're still not doing much. I mean, they're doing stuff, but it's all very like, you know, you want to make something very teeny (laughs) with no money, you know, go crazy. So you have to be kind of flexible all the time, right? So then I was like, I haven't made a drama in a long time. I was kind of looking at the budget levels I could probably raise money. And I realized, you know, it's pretty limited. It's not about the same as Radiant City budget, say, which is okay for a doc, but for fiction, it's harder. I wrote this script with my wife, Donna Brunsdale. What's something that we can do that we can do on a low budget, fairly low budget? So we have a neighbor who, write, who runs ultra marathons. And I always, you know, over the last few years, she's always, you know, you hear stories about ultra marathons are nuts. Like they're, you run 100 miles in 30 hours. Nonstop. Uh, with non-stop. no breaks. Yeah. You stop, but you, you know, you stop for five minutes or right. you lay down at the side of the trail, you know, right. like it's really pretty intense. We thought, well, that's a pretty cool idea. So then we just wrapped a narrative into that. So we have, a, it's a doctor. He's going through something. He's wanted by the police for questioning. And he's got um, his office. The reporters are at his house. You know, that's happened just from text on his phone. And he's about to run in this marathon. He's waking up in his car at a parking lot at a, at a staging ground for the beginning of a marathon. He, re- he changes into his running clothes. He restarts the race. And then during even the lead up, before the race even starts, you start getting an idea of what's going on. And then over the course of the race, you figure out why he's in trouble, what's going on. And uh, it's quite complicated. But then, you know, and over the course of the race, you kind of figure it out. So it's cool. It's, you know, there's not a lot of flashback action, but there's what I love about it is we have characters like his, you know, his wife, people that are involved in this conflict that he's involved in start showing up like just in the aid tents, like at the, you know, in the middle of the top of a mountain, middle of the night, because it's like, because he's losing his mind, right? Because right. when you right. run for 30 hours, you start to hallucinate. And right. So it's, it's that, but it's also something that we can, it's manageable. You know, it's really, it's not many people, you know, we're going to have a small crew, but we're going to be running mountain passes. <laughs> and you so know, that starts shooting in the fall? October. Uh, hopefully. We've got most of our money, but we're, it's going to be a couple weeks before we get the last piece of the puzzle but it looks it's very it looks strong it's probably gonna happen does it have a working title it's called Man Running very simple title and, and <laughs> do out title. and do out in 2018 sometime yeah
the premise of this show is um, that some types of work really aren't work at all. Do you feel that's true in your case? Yeah, it's been a fun job. It is a fun job. I don't love shooting. Shooting is hard work, but I really enjoy writing and I like post-production. You know, you're creating something. You know, you already, I'm already looking forward to the end of this film. Like I've, I've got it in my head. I'm going to be, you know, a year from now, it'll be done. And I already have another two scripts I'm kind of keen on. And it's, it just keeps you going. It's pretty fun. But it's also a hustle. It's still high stakes. You need a lot of money. Right. And you need to get a lot of people excited about it. And so you really have to be a salesman, which I'm, I don't love that part of it, but I do it. And I'm actually producing this film. I worked with producers. I produced my early films. And then from way downtown till Futures Now, I worked with a couple other producers. So I was mostly just doing creative. I didn't have to worry about the producing end. And I kind of got out of producing. So I was kind of, once um, they moved on, one person went to work for the NFB. The other person I'm still working with a bit. I should have, I had to keep my hands in the producing end because that's, there's less and less funds now. So you kind of have to take that up too. Mm-hmm. So now I'm producing as well. And that's, it's more of a grind. It's a bit of a hustle, you know, and you're, you got to do the work, but I still, I enjoy it. I don't have a pension from a corporate, you know, from a company. So, I mean, you know, you got to save some money and I don't see retiring anytime soon. You know, <laughs> like I think we'll be working until the bitter end. So if you couldn't make films, what would your second choice be? You know, I had a, a pretty dark period a few years ago where I wasn't working much and it was, you know, I was kind of tired. I wasn't really up for it. And, you know, literally I'm just like, what else can I do? I don't have any skills, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, I could teach, but, you know, that's teaching because you can't make is probably not much fun. You know, like having to kind of go, you're not doing it. So now you're teaching. I don't think that's really, it's not good for anybody. It's not good for the students and it's not good for you, you know. Right. I mean, I like teaching when it's, you know, kind of as a, it's fun to do once in a while, but I certainly wouldn't want to do it full time because right. I, I really don't know. I don't have any. I thought of that. I, I joked to a friend of mine. I said, "Man, I guess I could drive a bus." Like I just was like, <laughs> I don't really have a backup plan. Right. Well, and, and to some degree, that's that's going to be the key to success is not having a backup plan. If you have a plan B, then plan B becomes plan A eventually, sooner or later. I always say that too. Um, uh, the one thing about film students, I always tell, is. Because this happens. Don't work in the industry. Do not go get a job as a cable puller. The problem is the money's so good, as just as a crew person, like as a tech, they make good money. The hours are nuts, so you're you're out of society. You're like it's like being a restaurant worker. You know, you hang out with restaurant workers. Like if you work in a restaurant, you know, you have weird hours, so you mm-hmm. hang out with restaurant workers because you're sleeping when people are going to work. It's the same as if you're a crew member, I just think. Because I've, I've bumped into many people that I was in film school with, and they're still just pulling cable or doing whatever. And they always say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get back to it. I'm going to start making films. And you know, you're not. You're not. Because now you got a mortgage. You bought a new car. you got two kids. you got to commit to it and stick with it, you know. And So when you say get a job in the industry, you mean sort of a menial job. I mean, for lack of a better term. I or, just mean don't, don't be a crew member. Don't right. work for – if you want to be a writer-director, be a writer-director. Don't do anything else. Right. Sure, if you're a cinematographer, I guess, because that's you're going to learn a lot, and that's a skill you want to have. Right. But, you know, I've never worked on another film. I've only worked on my own. You know, I think you're better, especially if you're writing and stuff, too. I was a house painter. You're better off to go do... You'd be, you'd be better off as a waiter. Right. Because you're not thinking about... You want... Even a waiter's not good. You need a job bus driver, you know, where you don't have to think about what you're working. You can be thinking about your script while you're working. You know, you're better off to be a laborer.
Gary, even though the Work Not Work show is a relatively new podcast, we already have a signature feature where I try and include in each episode the opportunity for the guests to ask themselves the last question, one that they've never been asked before. In your case, what's that question? What's your answer to it? I was thinking about uh, your question, uh, this idea. No one's really asked me if I regret this, you know, becoming a filmmaker or would have chosen other occupation because that comes up occasionally for me. So the question would be, you know, if I had the chance to do it again, would I, you know, would I just become a filmmaker? And it's not as easy. Like, I don't think it's a a for sure yes because there's a lot of challenges to... uh, a creative life, I guess, right? People are always like, oh, you know, it's that must be so great. It does, it, it's fairly all-consuming. I mean, I've trained myself to kind of turn off at five o'clock. Like, I try to, I, I really struggled for many years where you'd just be, I'd have to have a notebook at the side of my bed, and I'm, you're always thinking about it, you know, so you're always taking notes, and I hardly keep notebooks anymore. I used to. Occasionally, you know, in the middle of the night, you'll wake up and, and uh, have to go write something down, right? But I think it's 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 a different life, especially in Calgary. Like, there's not, you know, it's not like I hang out with a bunch of filmmakers. So you're kind of isolated. You know, you only get one shot at this. It's so, you know, at your life. And it's, would you be better off to be a doctor or a politician or do something where you're actually making policy and, you know, you're doing something constructive, you know, because is this just entertainment and what's its real value? I mean, I try to make my work be about something a bit bigger than just entertainment so I feel pretty good about a couple of my films where I feel like you know I think Radio City I had people come up to me and say you know I bought a condo downtown instead of a place out in you know in Rocky View or whatever after I saw your film I've had the odd occasion where someone actually says you know your film had an impact on me so you know there's some value there for sure but occasionally I do think uh have a job with a pension and you know and some security and not have to be hustling all the time it's certainly uh, a factor gary i would just like to once again thank you for taking the time today it's just been absolutely fascinating and i think going to be incredibly valuable for people who are students of film both as audience members and as uh, potential filmmakers. So thank you very much for taking the time and I hope to visit with you again in the future. Yeah, well, thanks for including me in your uh, program. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Work Not Work Show. For more information, including ways to support our efforts, please visit our website at the.worknotwork.show and look for us on all of your favorite social media platforms.